Welcome to Awaken to Grace. I'm Chad Roberts, and today we come to Mark chapter 11. And what an amazing chapter this is. If you have followed our series where we're preaching through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, you know that we're in a series called Walking with Jesus. And today we come to such a crescendo of the book. We come to the place where Jesus is going to teach us, speak to the mountain. And if you say to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, do not doubt in your heart, you will have what you say. Well, you know what? To really understand that verse, to really get it right, well, there are many other things we're going to have to understand beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. So we're going to take our time. We're going to walk through the verses of this amazing chapter. Oh, I've loved the book of Mark. And you know, going into chapter 11, I had so many questions. Why did Jesus curse the fig tree? Why did he cleanse the temple? Friends, we're going to see the divine order today. We're going to see the clear logic of Scripture, and as always, we're going to see how Scripture builds upon itself, line upon line, precept upon precept. I'm so glad that you're in this study with me. If you've missed any of our series, then download my free mobile app, Awakened to Grace. You can search your app store or Google Play or wherever you get your favorite apps and walk through this incredible book together with us and share it with a friend. Let's go to God's Word today. Mark chapter 11 from Awakened to Grace. All right, let's go to Mark chapter 11 today. Boy, I got some content to share with you. If you're brand new to our church, if you're a guest this morning or you're watching online for the first time, uh, you may not know I'm completely blind. That's why I don't preach with a Bible. So when I have a challenge like we're currently in, preaching through the entire book of Mark, and on, today, on days like today where I'm going to try to take you from memory through chapter 11, you follow along in your, in your Bible or your device and uh, help, me, help me not to miss anything. There are basically five sections of Mark chapter 11. And this is my premise today. This is what I really want you to see out of the Scriptures. I want to answer the question, what is real faith? We have invested all of these weeks preaching through each chapter of the book of Mark. We started in chapter 1. Today we're in chapter 11. And all through this series, we are building our faith. And today we come to a crescendo where Jesus expressively says, have faith in God. But what is that? Jesus says, if you say to the mountain... Be removed and do not doubt in your heart, but believe you'll have what you say. But what does that mean? How is faith different from just positive thinking? How is faith different from twisting the scriptures and, manip and just manipulating God? To, like, like God is a genie in a bottle. And if I quote this right verse or if I crack this code, then God must do what I ask. Is that faith? No. No. 
How is faith different than positive thinking? How is it different than manipulating God? How is it different from the sheep telling the shepherd what I need or what I want? No, 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 no. That's not real faith. And these are the issues that Jesus is going to address. What is What did Jesus mean when he say, When you pray, ask and believe that you receive then you'll have what you ask for. What in the world does that mean? Well, we're going to peel it back today. We're going to explore it today. But to get there, we got to understand the context. We have to understand what's going on in the chapter, beginning with verse 1, follow down to verse 20. So look in your Bibles with me. I want you first to note verses 1 through 11 in chapter 11. This is what is called the triumphal entry. Now let me teach just for a moment. Let me recap a little bit of what we've said because it's important to our text. Remember what the synoptic gospels are. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why are they called synoptic? Remember we've said that they are the same content but seen through a different perspective. Synoptic, S-Y-N, as in where we get our English word synonym. So it's going to be the same stories. You can find the triumphal entry in Matthew, and he'll give his account. In Mark, which we'll see today, and also in the book of Luke. Sin, S-Y-N, the same, the synonyms, the same content. Optic, perspective, eye, vision. What does it mean? It's the same content, but seen through different perspectives. So what is very helpful when you study the Gospels is if you will read them in parallel to one another. You'll you'll learn details in Matthew that you won't find in Luke. You'll gain things out of Mark that you won't get from either Matthew or Luke. So it's helpful to understand it is synoptic. The same, but through a different lens, through a different perspective. Well, when we come to the triumphal entry here in this section, verses 1 through 11, I want you to know this about the triumphal entry. If you're going to take notes, it is the most precise scripture that is prophesied in the Old Testament. They're all precise, but, you know, let me use a better word because it's all precision, as I'll show you. Maybe a better word for us is that the precision of the text is stunning. Let's say that. It is the most stunning portion of Scripture. See, what Luke tells us is Jesus tells the Pharisees, if you recognized your hour of visitation. See, something happens in the Gospels. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees get really angry, when you see them get really indignant with Jesus, a lot of times our Western ears are not picking up what's going on. But you know what has just happened? The reason they are so angry is because something major out of the Old Testament was just fulfilled. Prophecy just happened. Something enormous took place. And they're angry about it. So anytime you see the Pharisees really mad, stop and dig right there in the text because there's treasure there. 
When Jesus does the triumphal entry, I want you to note this. It is the most stunning precision in the Bible. This was prophesied, if you just want to note this, I'm not going to go into full detail because I covered this in our Revelation series last year. And I went into great detail. You can go back, you can look for the Revelation series on the Awakened to Grace app. If you choose the sermon called Daniel's 70 Weeks, I explain it all. Down to the very day, down to the very hour that Christ fulfilled this prophecy. Let me just give you the spark notes for right now because I don't have time. I won't ever get through chapter 11 if I go into too much detail on this. But here's what you need to know. The triumphal entry concludes a major section of prophecy. In Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, the Bible teaches what God calls 69 weeks This was 400 and some, maybe 489, 490 years, whatever. You have to go back and listen to the Daniel 70-week sermon. I can't contain everything. Okay. Whatever the 69 times 7 is, that would, what is, somebody good with math, tell me. How many years is that? Oh, don't fail me. Oh, come on. How many? 400, thank you. Okay. I, I can't get into the weeds. Here's the point. The death of Christ. This is called the Passion Week. We go into the triumphal entry. This is going to be the last week of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. It stops what Daniel called the 69th week. There is one week left to go in human history. It's called the 70th week. And when does Jesus say that 70th week begins? It's when a world leader named the Antichrist is going to sign a covenant with Israel. All of this ties together. And when does Daniel say that this 70th, when when does he say that this time period begins is 69 weeks? It's when Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, restored. That happened under Nehemiah. So from the time of Nehemiah to the day, to the hour that Christ did his triumphal entry. It is at 69 weeks fulfilled. That's why Jesus told the Pharisees, if you understood your hour of visitation, if you understood the word. Now we are in a period, we are in a parenthesis of Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and Romans 11 calls it the times of the Gentiles. This is the Gentile, born-again, blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled church. This period is from the day of Pentecost to the harpazo, to the rapture, to Revelation chapter 4, the catching up of the church of Jesus Christ. And we don't know the time. Only God Knows that time. But when the harpazo, when the church is caught up, then this world ruler is going to step to the stage. He'll sign a treaty with Israel. And then that clock, that 70th week, will once again begin to tick. And what God began with his people Israel, Romans 11, God will fulfill 
during the tribulation period, and he will save his people Israel. Now, what I want you to know for our purposes today is when Christ gets on this colt that had never been ridden, I want you to write this down. He fulfilled Zechariah 9, verse 9. He literally fulfilled the Old Testament Scripture to precision. He not only fulfilled Zechariah 9.9 by riding the colt that had never been ridden. He not only gave the word of knowledge of where to find the colt. But he entered Jerusalem at the very time, the very year, the very month, the very day, the very hour that Daniel 9 prophesied it. And a great transition is taking place. Now, if you'll understand this, my friends, you're going to understand the rest of the text. The triumphal entry is setting up the greatest transition in history. So, the people cut palm branches. They spread their coats. They put down palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna. This is fitting for a king. Why are they singing, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are they singing this? That is what's called a Hallel Psalm out of Psalms 118. They are quoting Psalms 118. It is the Old Testament being fulfilled right here in the pages of our Bible. Now, I want you to understand what's happening. The Mount of Olives is a short distance from where the temple was. It's only 300 yards. Everything in Israel is very small. As Jesus is descending the Mount of Olives on the colt that had never been ridden, and the crowd before him and the crowd behind him is praising him as king, and they're recognizing him as king, guess who's watching from the temple? His enemies. The enemies who not only want to kill him and are not only plotting to kill him, but we'll kill him by Friday. This is Monday. And this begins what we call the Passion Week. What's interesting is as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, as we read throughout all the Gospels, <clears throat> through the previous accounts, up to this point, it's as though Jesus was a bit cautious around the authorities. Not because he feared them. No, 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 no. But because... The time was not right. When Christ died on the cross, do you realize it was at the precise moment of the Passover lambs being killed? The time was not right. This day when he rode into Jerusalem <clears throat> is when the priest would begin to examine the lambs. And now Christ, being examined by his father, will become the ultimate, the final sacrifice for sin. I can't express to you the weightiness of this chapter. So follow me in the text. So verses 1 through 11, he rides into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives on a colt that's never been ridden, fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, fulfilling Daniel 9, verses 24, up into the parentheses. Now, what's going to happen next? The Bible says that Jesus is hungry. 
and he sees a fig tree in the distance. And the tree is full of leaves, and he goes to find fruit, but there is no fruit on the fig tree. Now Mark is going to tell us something that I've never quite understood. It's really made me scratch my head. It says that there were only leaves and that there was no fruit. There were no figs. And so Jesus curses the fig tree and says, May no man ever eat from you again. And then Mark tells us a huge detail. And he says, And the disciples heard it. Now, this is highly interesting. First of all, I want you to note this is the one and only time in the recorded Gospels that Jesus used his power to bring destruction. The only time that he ever used it in a negative sense. I want you to note this. A fig tree always represents Israel in the Bible. And more importantly, there is going to be a link to their temple. There's going to be a link to the unrighteousness of the way that they were doing religion and the cursing of this fig tree. Now, why was it filled with leaves? See, Mark is is not writing to a Jewish audience. Mark is writing to the Romans, and he's going to help us who are Gentiles. He's going to help us understand what's going on. Why was the tree filled with leaves but not fruit? Well, in Israel, even to this day, leaves began to appear on fig trees during the months of March and April. When was Jesus crucified? We know by Passover records, we know he died April 3rd, 33 A.D. So if he died in early April, we know that the fig tree produces its leaves in March and April. It does not produce the figs until May and June. So what did Christ expect? It's not the time for figs. You know, I read this and read this and read this. And I think, Lord, I know you're sinless, but I'll be honest, it sounds like you're hangry. Were you that hungry that you became so angry that you just cursed the tree? No, not at all. Why did he cleanse the temple? Was he just angry? No. There's an eternal lesson here. So, understand this. When the fig trees begin to bring their leaves forth, What comes is the fig, and the fig will be in a round ball, almost the size of a marble. And they are edible. Some even have a bitter taste to them, but nonetheless, they are edible. Jesus needed energy because he was about to exert an enormous amount of energy when he cleansed the temple. So Jesus looks for these Round marble buds. They were the buds of the figs. They had not blossomed yet. What Jesus found in this tree was just fancy leaves with no fruit at all. The point, if you want to write this down, the point of the cursing of the fig tree is that it was fruitless. It bore its leaves but didn't bear any fruit. 
And what he's going to do, church, he's about to go to the most holy site on the earth. He's about to enter the temple in Jerusalem. And even though he's not going to find full fruits of righteousness, he should at least find the buds. Even though it's not the full fruit, he should at least find find something of righteousness in the temple of God, but he finds nothing. All he finds is fancy and polish and big leaves, and that's it. The cursing of the fig tree represents the fruitlessness of religion. It represents the fruitlessness of man making a mockery of the things of God. So now he's going to go into the temple and watch how fascinating this is. This is verse 15. Watch verses 15 to verse 19. Jesus goes in and there's money exchangers everywhere. Now what what are money changers in the temple? Now, let's understand a little bit about the text. because it, it, it calls this whole chapter to come alive to us. If you and I say we lived in North Israel in this day, let's say we lived right on the Syrophoenician border, that Lebanese border, and it was quite a journey from there for us to go to Jerusalem. And you and I made our pilgrimage once a year to the holy city, to the temple, to make sacrifice for our family. Well, that's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot of money to make that travel. You and I are going to have to take animals to sacrifice without any blemish. If we were, uh, you know, in good financial shape, you and I would take a lamb. Most Jewish boys understood what it was to raise a lamb, have the lamb live with them, and take it on the road to Jerusalem and have it sacrificed. That's why when John said before he baptized Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jewish male, their ears perked because they used to carry their little lamb with their fathers to Jerusalem. Historians tell us that Jerusalem would have swelled to well over a million people during Passover. This was a nightmare for Rome. The greatest thing that the Roman authorities feared was an insurrection was a rebellion. And now you've got the Jews coming, not only from all of Jerusalem, but from the entire world. They're making their pilgrimage. They're descending on Jerusalem. It's going to swell to over a million people, which was enormous in ancient days. And they're going to feel that nationalistic pride of Israel under the occupancy of Rome. And so when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Olives on a colt that's never been ridden and crowds are chanting, Hosanna! You better know Rome got nervous. The chief priests got nervous. The Pharisees were nervous. The Sadducees were nervous. And all the bigwigs got mighty, mighty nervous because it had insurrection written all over it. If you and I were going to travel to Jerusalem and it was going to swell to over a million people. And by the way, I looked it up just out of curiosity. That was enormous in ancient days. But even today, as of 2020 was the last census, Jerusalem's population is 945,000. 
over 2,000 years later. Imagine what it was in ancient times to swell to over a million people. If you enjoyed today's broadcast and would like to hear more great content, you can always download our free mobile app, Awaken to Grace, where you can request prayer, find sermons, articles, blogs, music, podcast, as well as support us financially. You can also visit either of our websites at www.preachingchristchurch.com or www.awakentograce.com for more information about our church or our resource ministry. Thank you for listening to Awaken to Grace.